Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Dan Hoffman spent decades in the CIA as a senior human officer, a spy. In the ashes of the Kabul catastrophe, I asked him what's next for the agency in that part of the world. The terrorists that we've been fighting against the past 20 years are still there. We might have thought we concluded the quote-unquote endless war, but Al-Qaeda and ISIS are still at war with us. And the Taliban, in spite of what they're saying on social media and in the, and in the uh, through their official spokes, spokesman, uh, they're providing safe haven to Al-Qaeda. That's retired CIA officer Dan Hoffman. I'll be talking with him later in the show. Gene? But first, Washington, D.C. is bracing. On Saturday, September 18th, a rally is scheduled in support of those arrested and charged for storming the Capitol on January 6th. Federal, state, and local officials and agencies say they are ready this time. They have shared intelligence and information, taken precautionary measures, and trained and exercised. Kathleen Ballou is an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago and author of the book, Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. I asked her what she expected and who she expected at the rally. The question I think that people on the ground have is whether it will be the organized extremist part of the white power movement that comes out or whether others will use this as an opportunity to voice their own frustrations. So one thing we saw on January 6th is that the sort of incendiary nature of that day was partly because those two groups of people came out at the same time, not just organized white power activists, but also a whole bunch of other people who perhaps have not had any longstanding affiliation with those groups but used that moment to take action about their own set of issues. So whether on September 18th, we're looking at sort of long running diet in the wool organized groups, or we're looking at people who've sort of gotten the memo and have come out just now will be one of the things that I think people on the ground are interested in figuring out. The other question for me is how much the white power groups and sort of extremist groups in general are able to mobilize on frustrations about masking mandates and vaccination mandates. I know that September 18th has also been going around as a possible day of action for those groups because, um, you know, it's the first weekend availability after the masking and vaccination policies suggested by President Biden that's not on the September 11th anniversary. So there's also sort of a dovetailing of opportunity there. And we know that white power activists are often looking for windows like that to sort of create radical activists. So um, they'll be potentially recruiting at an event like this? Certainly. I think that, um, you know, the long history of white power activism shows us that these groups always are looking for kind of points of social tension that they can capitalize on for their own purposes. We also have our recent withdrawal from Afghanistan. Does that factor in as well? Absolutely. 
I think that, you know, people are often saying things like um, Americans don't really care about history or our nation is such a young nation that we don't remember these things. But immediately after the fall of Kabul, we saw people in these groups talking about the fall of Saigon in 1975 and the, the images of the helicopters leaving Kabul look so much like the images of the helicopters leaving Saigon after the end of the Vietnam War. And what we know is that the Vietnam War was enormously important for white power groups to come together. Why Um, is that? Well, so the Vietnam War does a number of really important things for this movement. It created a narrative about betrayal by the government that was legible to people beyond extremist circles. It created a surplus of weapons and tactics and people with training that escalated its civilian casualty capacity. And it also was a way of bringing together people who couldn't get in the room before. So if you think about pre-Vietnam War, something like the Ku Klux Klan, which described itself as patriotic, did not easily align with neo-Nazism. But after the Vietnam War, all of these groups saw themselves as sort of brought together by this moment of emergency and betrayal by the government. And that's what really allowed the white power group uh, movement to sort of congeal into one social groundswell and also to bridge gaps that it wasn't able to bridge before. That's when we really see it getting into every region of the country, rural, urban, and suburban places, bringing together people from a number of different ideological backgrounds, men, women, and children, people across social class. That's really the mix that solidified that takes us all the way into the present day. And is this a similar moment, do you think? I think so. I think we have a number of push factors that we've seen in the past have led to radicalism. So one is the aftermath of warfare, which has been the best predictor for this across the course of American history. Another is economic uncertainty, which is ongoing in many communities as we do things like reduce support for um, eviction moratoriums and things like this, reduce financial support after the COVID pandemic. Also huge upsurges, of course, in racial justice uh, protests and organizing right now, in immigration right now. And we have also this this degree of uncertainty around masking and anti-vaccine, which was enormously helpful for these groups in the spring of 2020. All of these have worked very well for this movement in the past, and we should expect them to continue to work for this movement in the present moment. I think you'd agree with me that not all MAGA supporters are white supremacists. But I do want to talk about the role of President Trump here, who famously after Charlottesville said about the Proud Boys, stand down and stand by. And just recently, he made comments about the Confederate Confederate General Robert E. Lee, calling him a unifier and a great strategist. How does that influence what's happening with these white power groups? Thank you for the question. I think, um, so I think his words were stand back, stand by. Oh, rather thank than you. Stand down. And I, I, I make that distinction only because for groups that are operating in a paramilitary model, which for um, listeners who might not be familiar, I'm, I'm using that word just to mean the appearance of military tactics and weapons and uniforms, et cetera, outside of the U.S. armed services. And in this movement, they're doing that in earnest um, and really using a military command structure. So the difference is important because stand down means we're abandoning this action, sit, you know, de-escalate. Stand by, stand back and stand by means the time for violence is close. And part of what we're seeing is that whatever President Trump meant by those words, 
these groups immediately took that as, as a, an endorsement of what they were doing and a further call to arms. They made that a slogan on their badges and jackets. They talked about that. They immediately sort of geared up in, in some really important ways that created a through line to January 6th. And here I'm talking about Proud Boys, which is the group that was specifically named by the president in that debate. But we see that this had ramifications throughout the white power movement. So one way to understand comments like that, and you know, I'm not a presidential historian. I'm not a specialist on President Trump. I think there are a lot of great analysts who've spent a lot of time decoding exactly what he meant. And I'm I'm not claiming to be one of those people here. But, you know, for my purposes, studying these extremist groups, I think it actually matters less what he meant than how they took it, which in terms of the remarks about Charlottesville, the remarks in the second debate, the remarks about January 6th, all of this has been green light, green light, green light for white power activists. And they haven't needed these big, loud calls to arms to find these opportunities to keep their momentum going. In the past, they've used much more subtle, nuanced slivers of possibility to get through. And here we have wide you know, doors thrown open. So it's it's really difficult to sort of overstate, you know, this is like a perfect window of opportunity meeting a deeply opportunistic movement. So we have to assume that people are running through that open door. Is he playing with fire when he does this? Oh, absolutely. Does, does he control think, them in any way? Well, see, that's the thing. I don't think that the sort of giving the green light means that you are commanding this group of people. This is a movement that has been deeply not only anti-democratic, but interested, overtly interested in the overthrow of the United States for decades, if not generations. So we're dealing with a movement that's not interested in having any part of the American government remain in charge in the way that I would imagine a president would wish to. I suppose that there are ways that Trump has changed the way we think about the offices of the presidency and the way our elections work and many other kind of promises of the, the democratic system. But um, no, he's not in charge of this. Nobody's in charge of this. This is a, a deeply cellular kind of a groundswell. This works through leaderless resistance and networks of cells and networks of individual personalities. And there's a lot of argument within this movement about what they're doing at any given time, about who's in charge, about which direction they're going to go. No, nobody's in charge of this. It's interesting to me that this group or groups that you say are interested in overthrowing government are pairing up with people who believe they're protecting democracy by protesting against the election results. Yeah, maybe this is a good time for me to pause and talk about what I mean by all these words too. So when I'm talking about the white power movement, what I'm talking about is the unified group of people in clan, neo-Nazi, radical tax resistor, skinhead, parts of the militia movement, posse comitatus, and other kinds of ideologies that are interested in not only the violent preservation of white supremacy, but who see their race as their nation. So I use the phrase white power instead of white nationalist, because I think that most people assume something much more peaceful when they hear the words white nationalist, because they assume that the nation in white nationalist is the United States. And for the people I'm writing about, the nation in white nationalism is the Aryan nation. They're interested not at all in the United States. They're interested in creating a transnational white country for all white people. And 
in the most extreme distillations of this ideology, they're talking about a genocide of everyone else in the world and the creation of an all white planet. So it really does go to that point um, and not just occasionally like the Turner Diaries, which is the main text of this movement envisions that kind of an end game. We have to sort of think about that in relation to other kinds of pro-white and nativist ideologies. So I think within the, the Trump administration, there's another sort of strand of white nationalist thinking that is more about the idea that there's something inherently white about the United States. So then we see immigration, restrictionism, nativism, some kinds of anti-Semitism, some kinds of racially charged policymaking and white supremacist policymaking. And all of that can be working in common cause with white power activism. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be a clash because there's always this deep revolutionary anti-democratic current in white power activism that is fundamentally anti-American and opposed to the state. So when we think about sort of the way that these groups come together, it's not even at that high level of kind of policy and strategy alignment. When we look at something like January 6th, we see a whole bunch of different belief systems that are acting in common cause because of that context. So January 6th, I think we can think of as Longtime white power activists with generations of contact and money and paramilitary training and ideological shaping, right? That's the organized groups, the people you see going through the crowd with radios, with bulletproof vests together with a plan, right? Then we see also a whole bunch of people that had just turned out that day for what they saw as a free speech action. action. They felt that the election was corrupt, that they they didn't trust in the system or that they were saving democracy, that they were reclaiming the people's house, et cetera. So the Trump base. And then there were people that were there for QAnon, which is operating, I think, in some ways that are very different than previous iterations of this movement. So all of this has social media as one of its operating engines, but QAnon is sort of this hyperspeed conspiracy theory that is, it's just much more radical and much faster than either of these other modes of action, I think. So we have all three of those groups. And of course, there will be some people who have multiple allegiances and there, is, there are fuzzy overlaps at the edges of each of these circles of activity. But I think it helps to like understand that these are three different positions and that a lot of it is motivated by sincere belief. Do you believe that law enforcement recognizes the magnitude of the threat and has the tools to deal with it? You know, that's a really difficult question because, okay, so when we say law enforcement and the magnitude of the threat, do you mean the threat of white power to the United States? Let's start there. So there's a lot of reason for optimism here because in the entire life of this movement, this right now today is the first time that the resources of the FBI and the DHS have been oriented towards solving this problem. There's a lot of historical reasons for this. We can go into COINTELPRO, we can go into sort of the allocation of scant resources after 9-11, but what with one thing and another, it's only within the last year and change that the FBI and the DHS have said that this white supremacist extremism represents the greatest terrorist threat to the American body politic. That's huge. That brings with it an enormous amount of resources and buy-in and education for these agencies. And I don't want to undermine how huge that can be. That's, that's an amazing step in the right direction that I never thought I would see when I was writing this book. However, 
The other thing that the historical archive shows is that that top level agency buy-in is only one part of confronting this problem. It has to go from the DHS and FBI down to field agents, down to local police departments, where we see a lot more um, friction in mission and in sort of the level of alarm that people feel for a whole lot of different reasons. In fact, you have sympathizers. Exactly. And members in law enforcement and members in, in many other places. Then you have to be able to try these activists with appropriate legal instruments. You have to be able to get a jury pool that understands enough about what this is to be able to render convictions. And we need to also have, you know, journalists who can tell the the right stories about all of these things. One of the reasons that we clutch on this is that you can be a dedicated consumer of the news and know that, say, the Proud Boys are an issue because they've been in the headlines a lot lately, right? You could even set up your Google alert and read every story about the Proud Boys, but you're still only seeing one tiny fraction of this groundswell because really this is the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and the base and Adam Waffen and a whole bunch of underground activity that we can't even see right now that we will only be able to find out about later on through archives and FOIA requests and more things like this. So So you can't see it, but can law enforcement see it? Do they have the tools? So I don't know. We're doing a lot more about data sharing. I, I'm a huge fan of as much data sharing and archiving as can be had. I want and I then want some more. But my guess is no, because if the historical archive tells us anything, it's that, you know, let me let me back into this answer a little bit. So you can look at people on the ground in the FBI who are really trying to do this work as it happened in the 80s, for instance. I'm thinking about an agent named Jack Knox, who was instrumental in prosecuting the order, which was a white terrorist group in the Pacific Northwest. And he was sounding the alarm as loud as he could about this. He was involved in multiple cases about white power activity. He had in front of him the information that this was not sort of disconnected cells of activity, but was part of a coordinated movement. He was at Elohim City, which is one of the compounds um, implicated in the Oklahoma City bombing. And he wasn't able to infiltrate because people were worried about an unarmed standoff. So it's like you can have the people on the ground, right? But it's not enough unless you also have the stories and you also have the tools and you also have the public paying attention. All of that has to be in place for us to get anywhere with this. I think we're at the beginning of a long haul. And I think that that's true both on the security side where we have just now decided, okay, we're going to allocate the resources and on the white power side, where we really should be thinking about January 6th as the beginning. It, that was a recruitment action. That was not meant as an act of mass violence. But we know that what comes next in the plague book is mass violence. So this is really the moment to act. So what do you think the trajectory is going forward? For the white power side? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. And I, I missed half of that last answer. So so where, where I was going with Jack Knox, let me let me backtrack and then I'll come back around to what might happen. So Jack Knox had a ton of information, but he wasn't able to do as much as he could have if he'd been able to see the whole picture. But so what do we need to see the whole picture? We need distance and archive and space. So to see the full picture of what Jack Knox was confronting, because he was looking at this partial view, he would have needed things like, you know, 20 years later, somebody leaves the movement and writes an autobiography. He needs things like there's this other big trial and somebody turns state's witness and testifies on their compatriots. He needs things like they finally do an audit of the armory at Fort Bragg and find out exactly how many stolen weapons have been streaming to these groups. 
And all of those kinds of things are still happening. We just can't see it in real time. That's why we need the history to get in there and figure out what we're looking at. And we need the current data too. Absolutely. We need all of it. We need all of it. This is an all hands on deck kind of situation. So what we should expect going forward. So the Turner Diaries, the book I talked about earlier, if people are listening and you get interested, please do not buy a new copy of this book. The money sometimes still goes back to National Alliance and we do not want that. So the Turner Diaries is a book that you will find out immediately if you get into this. It's not important to this movement because it's like a good novel, but because it answers this question of how can a group of fringe actors hope to pose a real revolutionary threat to the United States, the the most militarized super state in world history, right? And what they lay out is cell-style terrorism called leaderless resistance, infrastructure attacks like the targeted assassination of government agents at every level, hits on currency and banking systems, hits on other things that people think of as part of their everyday life. And then a sort of game of chess involving the seizure of nuclear weapons the commanding of nuclear threats, and eventually they provoke a nuclear war and then seize control of the United States in kind of the aftermath of the apocalypse. But isn't that very much uh, pie in the sky? Oh yeah, that's pie in the sky. Pie in the sky and far out. But it lays out a whole bunch of specific events that they have tried over and over and over again. In this book, we have the blueprints of the Oklahoma City bombing. We have the blueprints of the coordinated assassination of government officials and infrastructure attacks that we saw in the 1980s when they were doing things like hitting gas lines, assassinating judges and state troopers, attempting to assassinate others like this. And we still, this is still live. We were talking about people trying to blow up the Hoover Dam last year. They were talking about, we still see stories like C4 going missing from military posts and bases. All of that is in line with what we're talking about here. So Turner Diaries has an event in it that is a attack on the Capitol, much like January 6th. And significantly in this book, it is not a mass casualty attack like these other things I've described. It is a mortar attack that is meant to kill just a few policymakers so that other white people will, quote unquote, awaken to the world they live in and join the race war. So if we know that they're using the Turner Diaries as a blueprint, which we do because Proud Boys are going around telling journalists to read the Turner Diaries. They're hanging nooses outside the Capitol. That's a direct reference to the Turner Diaries. We know that the next set of things does involve mass casualty attacks. It involves things like the attempted bombing of nuclear power plants to create mass mass casualties there. Things like um, the coordinated attack on people who are considered enemies of the race, like FBI agents and judges, but also anybody in an interracial relationship, anybody um, who works for a media organization, anybody who is a professor. Um, it goes on and on like this. And it involves mass bombings like Oklahoma City. So what we know is that that is not seen as a failure by people in this movement. The fact that they didn't kill people in large numbers on January 6th, that's not evidence of failure. That's how that event is supposed to work within this worldview. So there have been a fair number of arrests, fair number of people charged after January 6th. I think the hope of federal authorities is that that will deter others from following this route. Do you think it does? Well, Unfortunately, no, I don't think it does. And the reason that I don't think it does is that we're not seeing a full-throated disavowal of the actions of January 6th. 
anywhere. We're not seeing a commission that is cleanly, all of our legislators, for instance, saying this is abhorrent and anti-American and, and should be condemned. We're seeing people really holding the line about things like, quote unquote, it was a normal tourist visit or saying that people had reason to do what they did or saying that it really wasn't a big deal. Similarly, I think that the trials are really going to face a hurdle in moving from thinking about this as individual wrongdoing to collective organized action. And I think the best sort of cognate example is the seditious conspiracy trial of a number of these activists in 1987-88 in Fort Smith, Arkansas, because proving seditious conspiracy, which is to say just proving that this was an armed attack on democracy. And I think that that was clearer in Fort Smith where they were more obviously talking about revolution and where they were using more serious weapons. That resulted in acquittal for a whole number of reasons, but you know, including reasons like chain of custody issues, jury selection issues. Two of the jurors had romantic relationships with defendants during the trial, which I think everyone can agree is not an impartial jury. There were other issues like one juror went on record after the acquittal saying that he believed the Bible prohibited race mixing, which is a common view at the time, but we didn't, I mean, there are jury pool problems, let's just say. Part of the, the, the lesson from Fort Smith is that that acquittal was read loud and clear as a green light for more violent action. And that was kind of the immediate kicker, both in shaping the scope of FBI response down and in inflecting white power violence up that leads us to Oklahoma City. So if these prosecutions aren't successful, in other words, it could further fuel the movement. Yeah, I mean, I think it will further fuel the movement if the prosecutions aren't successful. So is there a way, do you think, to get to the root of the problem? We're a multiracial society. Is there a way to change hearts and minds or is it simply too deeply rooted in American history? The way you phrase that question makes me remember that there's another push factor we didn't address earlier, which is immigration. Immigration, also the census that just came out that shows that we are more multiracial. We're moving in a more multiracial direction as a country. You know, it's worth noting that for these activists, you know, we usually we think about that as sort of soft demographic transformation. And most of the stories you read about the census are phrased that way. But these activists see that information as apocalyptic. They see that as the annihilation of the white race is coming even closer. And it's really important to understand that kind of sense of state of emergency for everything that comes next. So the question about can we win hearts and minds? Can we live in a multiracial nation and and resolve this? I believe so. I, I think that, I mean, I'm a historian and I'm aware that when you have a hammer, everything is a nail, but I really think that better history instruction a conversation about our shared history of racial violence and racial inequality and better civics education is a integral starting place to all of this. I think that even something like a MAGA hat that says make America great again is a claim about history that has argument in it about what America is and when it was great and whether it can be great again and what greatness is, right? We need to meet that argument on those terms. And I but think that, how can we do that when something like critical yeah. race theory has become such a flashpoint, for instance? Well, that's an interesting one because, you know, I think if you ask any historian, nobody who understands what critical race theory is 
is worried about critical race theory being anywhere in our education system. That's it's it's a totally but it has been weaponized. It has been weaponized. Right. right. But I think that you can only weaponize things like that in the absence of actual conversations about history. I think that, you know, the United States is not unique in our history of racial violence and white supremacy and racial inequality. There's a lot of nations that have struggled with these things, but we're quite unique in how little we've done in creating the opportunity to have big public conversations about this story that we all share and what it ought to mean for us moving forward. We've had no national truth and reconciliation process. I really think that there is potential for public dialogue about this and for all of us to have the conversations we need to move forward. That was Kathleen Ballou, an expert on the white power movement, assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago and author of Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. That was fascinating, Jean. And Kathleen Ballou certainly brings an unusual level of nuance to the subject of white power and who's who and what the various disparate groups bring to the table and how they can coalesce over a particular overarching issues, such as stop the steal and so on. I've heard recent reporting that these militants may not be planning a massive march on Washington like January 6th, but maybe coalescing around state capitals, which, of course, creates a different kind of security problem. And a DHS official said that today, that the estimates are less than a thousand people expected in Washington, but they are on the lookout and other locations. She, however, would not be specific about what those locations were. Yeah, well, we can only keep our fingers crossed that state level security organizations are prepared and ready for these assaults if they come. Of course, what's one thing that's been worrisome about these groups is that they've found some affinity in the local police forces, and that is definitely worrisome. Anyway. On to Dan Hoffman. He's a former senior executive clandestine service officer with the Central Intelligence Agency. His combined 30 years of distinguished government service included high-level positions, not only within the CIA, but also with the U.S. military, the U.S. Department of State, and the Department of Commerce. His tours of duty include the former Soviet Union, Europe, and the war zones of both the Middle East and South Asia. Over the weekend, as the nation mourned the 911 anniversary, I asked him for a tour of the intelligence landscape after the Afghanistan withdrawal. Dan Hoffman, welcome to Spy Talk. We've talked many times over the years. You know I have huge respect for you and your experience and your acumen and your wisdom about U.S. intelligence, what it should and should not be doing, what it could do better. So the smoke has cleared from the catastrophe in Kabul, so to speak. We're now passing through the bittersweet memories of the 911 attacks, a very melancholy weekend. I'd like to put you in the chair of the head of operations at CIA. What do you see and what are you going to tell the director, Bill Burns, about what you see and what we should be doing? as we move on from 911 and the collapse in Kabul? Well, I think 
we might be tempted to say that it feels a lot like September 10, 2001, right now, since the Taliban conquered Afghanistan. But actually, I think it's a lot worse than September 10, 2001, because the Taliban defeated us after a 20-year insurgency. They captured a treasure trove of our weapons, and they gained a lot of status in the region and beyond with the victory over the government of Afghanistan and vanquishing a world power in the process. The terrorists that we've been fighting against the past 20 years are still there. We might have thought we concluded the quote-unquote endless war, but al-Qaeda and ISIS are still at war with us. And the Taliban, in spite of what they're saying on social media and, in the, and in, uh, through their official spokes, spokesman, they're providing safe haven to al-Qaeda. The Minister of Interior for the new Taliban government is Sirajuddin Haqqani. He's a designated terrorist, and the Haqqani network, as you know, notorious for allowing al-Qaeda to homestead on their territory. And they themselves, the Haqqani network, conducted so many ruthless attacks on Afghan civilians, on our coalition forces, and the government of Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is, in my view at least, a more clear and present danger to us right now than it's ever been, and it's only going to get worse. So you're sitting with uh, CIA Director Bill Burns this week, a big meeting to strategize the future. What are you going to recommend? Well, I think the CIA's mission remains the same. It's to detect threats and preempt them before they're visited on our shores. Now, the preempting part is often in conjunction with State Department diplomats when appropriate or with the U.S. military when a kinetic strike is appropriate. The discussion with Director Burns would have to be about how we go about running sources inside Afghanistan, source penetrations of al-Qaeda, of ISIS, throughout the country as we have before, but without military and diplomatic enablers. We have no embassy in Afghanistan. We have no military footprint. So we need to come up with ways for the CIA to go about that mission in spite of those things, which makes it far more riskier, far more challenging. But this is what the CIA does. George Tenet, when he was director of CIA, used to say, yeah, the CIA does hard stuff. So that's what this is. There's no such thing as a denied area to the CIA. Uh, It used to bother me when people said that Moscow is a denied area. It's not denied. We're there. And Afghanistan is not denied, even though it's grown in in challenge to us. So I think that the discussion right now is, is focusing on just that, how we go about doing it. And that's all super secret sensitive stuff that you know, our, our citizens won't be privy to the details of that, but we'll have to rely on, on our dedicated intelligence professionals to keep up the job. And I'm sure that in the Congress, House and Senate oversight intel committees will be focused on this very, very seriously. Let me ask you just a little bit of inside baseball before we get back to strategy. As you uh, know, it's been widely, was widely reported years ago, there was a struggle over who should be running the drone program against terrorists. Do you think CIA should relinquish that authority or those operations back to the uh, Pentagon that they should be controlling them? It's one thing to launch a strike. And the military is really good at that. It's another thing to find and fix the target. So those are the three stages, find, fix, and finish your targets. Although I would argue there's four stages, even though we like to think of things in three, at least that's what my old boss, Michael Morell, used to say at CIA. It was always three things to Michael. But I won't segue into one of those Michael Morell stories just yet, unless you ask me to. But really, it's find and fix and then fix to finish 
and then finish the target. So what I mean by fix to finish is you might find an al-Qaeda terrorist who's threatening the homeland. You might fix that terrorist's location. What if the terrorist is surrounded by 100 civilians or children and women? And maybe you don't want to take that strike just yet. You want to, Or, or you're you not to, absolutely sure. I mean, this or, strike right. uh, outside Kabul airport is mired in controversy now. Right. It might not have been a terrorist at all. Might not have been. So you want to make sure. And sometimes the phone the guy's talking on is just the phone. It's not necessarily the person. So what I think that we sometimes don't always grasp is that there's a process here and a successful strike on terrorists is an intelligence operation. It is about collecting source intelligence, human source intelligence, marrying that up with signals intelligence and overhead reconnaissance and everything else we have to produce good analysis and make the right decision on whether the strike is is a righteous one or not. The Obama administration wanted near certainty before we took strikes. I'm not quite sure how you get there if you don't have human sources. Now, the CIA is your intelligence service. We are the preeminent intelligence service in the world. In my view, it's always been the case that we should be the ones conducting operations of this sort, hypothetically, if they were to be conducted, because it's an intelligence operation. It's not a go to the target range and shoot a target kind of thing. It's, it's an intelligence operation. And there should be collaboration with the U.S. military. But I believe if you want to do it right, that's how you do it. And at the end of the day, it's the president's finger on that trigger. So when President Obama gave his famous speech about predator strikes, I think it was in 2012, if I remember right, you know, I would have said, um, Mr. President, that's your finger on the trigger, not the CIA's or the U.S. military. It's you. You're the president. You own it. At the end of the day, it's President Biden's program to do with as he wishes. Now, some really well-experienced experts uh, on al-Qaeda and the terrorism war have said that uh, continuing this whack-a-mole strategy against terrorists isn't really all that effective because there's always somebody next to come along and stand up and you can turn the citizenry against you by these operations. What, what's your opinion about that? I was um, happened to be in Pakistan a few years back, and a uh, congressman visited us and made, asked the same question you did, said, when are we going to be done with this? When can we leave? And I said, well, you're, you're uh, visiting a failed state. And as long as these states like Afghanistan and regions of Pakistan are failed, they will be petri dishes, growing extremist threats, and we need to take out those threats. I'm sorry if we keep needing to do it, but if you don't eliminate the threats, then we will be suffering attacks in the region and potentially in the homeland. We've eliminated scores of al-Qaeda senior leaders and their foot soldiers over the past 20 years. Had we not done that, I'm quite convinced that we would have been hit in the homeland. So I think it's a very kind of simplistic, sophomoric way to describe our counterterrorism mission as whack-a-mole. I find that, frankly, offensive. Same thing as connecting dots as if it's a first-grade art project or something. Really, it's not like that. There are threats out there, and we need to deal with those threats. And I'm sorry there are failed states and there are terrorists, but if we don't do something about it, then we'll be hit. Now, you can get to the the issues of what causes the terrorism and what causes the youth in Afghanistan, Pakistan, other parts of the world to be vulnerable to being exploited by terrorists. That's a different argument, a different discussion to have, and and a different policy. But if you're asking me as an intelligence officer or somebody who worked with the U.S. military, no, I'm going to go find those al-Qaeda guys and deal with them before they strike the homeland. If you'd rather I don't because you think it's a whack-a-mole exercise, well, okay, 
then they're just going to do what they did to us on 9-11. And I'm really sorry we have to keep doing it, but we've got a bullseye on our faces. We're in the crosshairs of our enemies, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. The Biden administration thinks that they concluded an endless war. We didn't. They're still at war with us. So if we don't want to be dealing with them, we'll pay, we'll pay the consequences. All right. And I want to talk about larger subjects. But I want, before we leave this, there's got to be some really intense conversations going on with the Pakistanis right now uh, on a number of issues, but particularly the possibility of using bases in Pakistan to strike al-Qaeda. What do you suspect is going to be the situation there? Well, that, that's never going to happen in Pakistan. The, the current Prime Minister Imran Khan has already said he won't allow the United States to have a base in Pakistan. That, that'll, I don't expect that to ever happen again, unless, God forbid, we're struck here in the United States and we go back to another situation like we had immediately after 9-11. It doesn't mean we can't work with the Pakistanis. They share an interest with the United States in targeting al-Qaeda and with targeting the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP. But they're certainly not going to help us with the Afghan Taliban. And where that kind of rubber meets the road is that they they are at threat from the Haqqani network, which allows al-Qaeda to homestead on their territory. And then al-Qaeda is threatening Pakistani civilians and the Pakistani nuclear program. So, you know, this is a challenge for Pakistan, but it does require us to do some good diplomacy, some good soft power work. And I'm quite sure that our intelligence and military professionals over there are, are working hard at finding, you know, whatever shaded space in the twisted Venn diagram that is our relationship with Pakistan, where we can actually work together. And we have worked together. Remember, you know, the Pakistanis captured a number of, of key al-Qaeda figures on our behalf, and we've worked well with them. It's just a challenge. It sure is. That's uh, to say the least. There have been what has been called the past Saturday night massacres after the end of other conflicts after Vietnam, the collapse of the Soviet Union and so on. Do you see a big reduction in force coming at CIA in regard to paramilitary operations now that we're out of Afghanistan? No, I think that's the irony of our exit from Afghanistan. I think the administration, this administration, wanted to focus on other things like climate change and and countering China. But Afghanistan is going to represent such a significant challenge for us. Look at all the meetings they've already had on Afghanistan uh, over the past few months. And I don't expect that to change because the threats are clear and they're present and we need to have good strategy to deal with them. And the the strategy is going to be really challenging to develop because we don't have the capacity we used to have. And so I think that will carry on. And I think that we need our intelligence professionals more than we ever have. CIA is a relatively inexpensive way to solve your problems. You know, you want to be expensive, launch a Tomahawk missile. That's expensive. But human, that's relatively cheap. Very high risk to insert American operatives into Afghanistan at this time. Would you recommend uh, a slow, uh, low level or high risk plan to keep contacting the assets that we have to stay behind in Afghanistan? Would you risk? putting case officers on the ground in Afghanistan? I'm sure it's being discussed. Remember when the Taliban controlled Afghanistan in the 90s, CIA was traveling into Afghanistan. My friend and former colleague Dave Tyson was doing it Mm -hmm. uh, and spoke all the languages. And at that time, of course, the Northern Alliance was holding out in Panjshir. And right now the Taliban is mounting a full court press to to take that away from from Massoud and Amrullah Saleh, the former director of the Afghan Intelligence Service and was the vice president of the, of the government of Afghanistan. So 
I'm sure that um, that that's a that's a discussion point about where, how, and if the CIA could could insert teams and and what is the risk, what is the value. We've been on the ground in dangerous places all over the world before, and I don't see any reason why those discussions aren't happening right now. But again, mm-hmm. it's always about the the risk and the potential gain from taking mm-hmm. that risk. Yeah, risk versus take is always the guiding principle of any operation. Would you recommend to uh, Director Burns that we step up or expand or accelerate language training? I think that we've been doing that for years. I, I was always a big proponent of that when I was at CIA. You know, when I retired, I still had what we call active language score. So my, I had recently tested in Estonian, Finnish, Russian, and Urdu. And I always felt like you need to have good language capability. I think Gina Haspel made that a, a real key element of her workforce development as well. You know, the Russians have a great saying, don't take your own ideas to somebody else's monastery. Understand cross-cultural differences, learn the languages. We need to know Dari, Pashto. We need to know, we need Uzbek speakers. We need Urdu speakers. And I'm sure that that uh, CIA officers are doing that and they're learning Chinese and Russian and Farsi and all Arabic, all the languages that, that really matter. Speaking of language and, and priorities, President Biden uh, has talked a lot about shifting priorities to China. President Obama uh, said the same. What does that mean in terms of CIA? Well, I think it means having a worldwide program where, just like we did with the Soviets, we can reach out and touch Chinese all over the world and uh, conduct operations. But I would have argued that if you really want to deal with China, you might want to stay in Afghanistan because, at least in some form or fashion, not with nation building, but a narrowly focused counterterrorism mission, keeping Bagram Air Base, given that the Taliban reneged on every part of the Doha February 2020 agreement that they made with us. You know, well, how do you, what do you mean keeping uh, Bagram Air Base? We're, we're not going to have a presence there. We don't. We don't have that anymore. That's a mistake that we made. So I would argue that if the Biden administration was serious about confronting China worldwide, which we should be, that means being out front in places like Africa and the Middle East and also in South Asia, where China is trying to make inroads. China is going to try to impose their debt diplomacy Belt Road initiative through Afghanistan. They're going to try to steal Afghanistan's minerals which were valued way back, I remember, in 2010 by the U.S. military and geologists worth over a trillion dollars. You know, there's a lot of lithium in in Afghanistan that could really be useful. China's going to make all sorts of deals with the Taliban. They don't care about human rights. And we're not going to be there to counter them. And we're going to see ourselves dealing with with a resurgent China in that part of the world. And they certainly don't have our best interests at heart. So if al-Qaeda is plotting against us and not China, I'm not so sure the Chinese would do anything about it. The CIA needs to do the collection, but I would argue as a concerned citizen that the policymakers need to have a plan uh, to deal with China. It doesn't just mean stopping their espionage at the point of attack in the United States or theft of intellectual property or their militarization of South China Sea. I mean, there, there's a lot of what China does that's just so incredibly nefarious, but Afghanistan's another place where they're doing it. And we've given up that piece of ground. So to translate some of what you said for a wider audience here, when you talk about confronting or dealing with China all over the world. When we translate that into espionage term, what we mean is that there are Chinese diplomats, businessmen, engineers, and so on spread out all over the world now with a Belt and Road Initiative and other activities. So we can approach these people at their embassies abroad or their activities abroad and try to recruit them. That's what you mean, right? Well, if you want to know what China's plans and intentions are for 
Iran, for example, you know, they're negotiating big deals with the Iranians or their military base in Djibouti or their plan for Afghanistan or plans to invade Taiwan. You need human sources. And that's what the CIA does. So Mm -hmm. for sure, uh, we're looking at what we've seen, and and it's only going to get more, I think, prevalent and more important for our national security, worldwide kind of cloak and dagger espionage CIA versus China, as we saw with Mm -hmm. the Soviets in the old days. Second oldest profession. Espionage is never going to go away. We're always going to and, and should be trying to recruit agents of uh, foreign uh, competitors and uh, enemies. But uh, in a major piece in The Atlantic recently, Amy Ziegart argued that we're always fighting the last war and that we should be paying a lot more attention in the cyberspace as well as open source. She said we really got to double down on open source. Another word for which is crowdsourcing, that there's a lot of people out there who are not in CIA or U.S. intelligence, but are gathering important information. And the agency in particular, CIA in particular, ought to be more attentive to that. What do you say to that? We learned that I watched it firsthand over a decade ago during the uh, Arab Spring, the value of having open source collection. I think it's important. And there certainly could be pressure from the Congress for the CIA to have an open source, you know, a greater open source capacity so that it feeds into our intelligence analysis. I know our analysts are very focused on the secrets that we're stealing and marrying that up with not just the other secrets we steal and signals intelligence and overhead reconnaissance, but also just open source information that's of great value to us. So I agree with you. I think we need to do more on that. There's a lot more collection to be done in cyberspace. And I think having good, big data, artificial intelligence capability is it's what's going to help us drive that collection. You spend a lot of time dealing with Russia, working in Russia. I think we talked about this some time ago, but I'd like to revisit it here. Whether the question of widespread corruption, insider dealing and so on in both the leaderships of China and Russia is uh, helping or providing a more hospitable atmosphere or playing field for the CIA to operate. There's always a tension there with a brutal autocracy like China's or Russia's, where the intelligence services in particular, who are in the know much more than regular citizens about the level of corruption in the country, grow disdainful of their masters, including in this case, Vladimir Putin. If they feel like he's ripping off the country like he is, it's a kleptocracy. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Kim Jong-un and with Xi Jinping. Those autocracies are a lot more brittle than we might think. In fact, that's why Kim Jong-un had this most recent military parade. That wasn't for us here in the United States. It was for his own people to understand that that he's still a strong man and uh, he wanted to project power. And that's what the Russians the Kremlin tries to do. It's what Chinese tried to do as well. And you can argue, I think, with some certainly, you know, historically, you can argue that uh, that's provided an opportunity for the CIA to make good recruitment operations against those who are dissatisfied with the regime in which they serve. They see it for what it is. And they uh, they might find some ideological affinity, you know, with the United States. And that's what scares Putin and Xi Jinping, it's democracy with a small d. Let's flip the mirror for a second. There's widespread disquietude, disaffection with the uh, U.S. government. It's developed in particular over the last 20 years, and we've even seen in 
insider domestic threat to decapitate the U.S. government, as we saw on January 6th. Do you think that uh, China and Russia are taking advantage of this uh, and seeking to recruit disaffected Americans within the security, within our own security bureaucracy or leadership circles? No. I mean, so it's different the way China and Russia is trying to exploit the United States, the challenges that we're having in the United States. The difference between us and those two countries is we have a functioning democracy that is based on the rule of law and freedom of speech, which doesn't exist in China and Russia like it does here. Certainly, there are disaffected Americans. Certainly, we faced our challenges with domestic terrorism. Look, we fought a civil war. We've had a long history of, of domestic extremism, KKK, assassinations of President Kennedy. I mean, I grew up in Boston reading the first books I read were about JFK's assassination and Martin Luther King's assassination. So we've had these challenges throughout our history. If you're an optimist about our country, you believe that, that we're strong enough, that our democracy might be rattled, but the foundation is strong. But where Russia and China seek to do us harm, I would argue, isn't necessarily using this to recruit U.S. security professionals. It might be to try to influence the dialogue by infiltrating our cyberspace and trying to drive U.S. citizens to extremes. It's just what they're doing, supporting far right wing groups in Germany ahead of the elections there and, and throughout Eastern Europe. So that's what they're trying to do here in the United States, trying to exacerbate the already strong partisan divide. And our politicians aren't helping because, you know, they all own a bully pulpit. President Theodore Roosevelt was right about that. What they say matters. People are listening and people will, some of them, even take up arms in response to what they hear. So if I could summarize what you're saying, I hope I got it right. More of the same. We're just shifting uh, our operations a little bit in regard to Central Asia, South Asia, uh, and the terrorist threat. Got to find new methods of, of reaching these terrorist targets. But in terms of Russia, China, uh, Iran, which we haven't really talked about, our other uh, North Korea, our other nemeses, more of the same or even better, double down. I would agree. Is CIA a good career these days? I don't think it's ever been better. You know, when I started government service in 1989, the world was a far safer place. You know, China was not a threat like they are today. The Soviet Union was in the middle of collapsing and certainly not as much of a threat as a resurgent Russia is today. North Korea didn't have a nuclear weapon. Iran wasn't trying to get one. Al-Qaeda didn't really exist like it does today, hadn't metastasized. There was no ISIS. And you look at the threats we face today, a dizzying array of threats. This is, you know, a great career for, for anyone who wants to, to serve their country, whether it's in the military, the State Department, or in the intelligence community. We need brave patriots like we never have before. That's former senior CIA officer Dan Hoffman. I suspect there's going to be some hot debate behind the closed doors of the Congressional Intelligence Oversight Committees on the degree to which they will allow CIA and or special operations agents to pursue al-Qaeda and ISIS in Afghanistan with drone strikes, for example. Other than clandestine operations to rescue Afghans left behind, there's not much stomach on Capitol Hill or maybe in the populace at large for involvement there right now. I think that's right. I was really interested in Hoffman's comments on rare minerals and how China will corner the market on Afghanistan's significant deposits. You'll remember we did an interview just a few weeks ago on the strategic importance of developing 
our own sources of these substances, which are critical to so many defense and other emerging technologies and whose production and refining are already dominated by the Chinese. They already had us in a vice. This appears to make it even tighter. Yeah, the Chinese were involved commercially in Afghanistan right under our nose during the war. They were very quick to invite the Afghans to come to Beijing and to discuss the future even before the collapse in Kabul. So that's another point of conflict or at least competition with Beijing for the United States and a very stiff challenge for the future. As if there weren't enough challenges. But that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Thanks for joining us. Remember, Spy Talk is on Substack. You can subscribe there and get more great content. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Looking forward to seeing you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.